The following sermon audio has been brought to you by Christ Church Downtown. For more information, go to Christkirk.com. And all of God's people said, Amen. Let's rise and worship our triune God. Bless the Lord who forgives our sins. His mercy endures forever. From Isaiah 40. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of all the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father and our great God, we are here now as your people because we have heard and we do know that you are the everlasting God, the true Lord, the creator of all the ends of the earth, and you do not faint or become weary. You are the God who says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We now come as those who are weary in our body, in our emotions, in our souls, and heavy laden with worry about the future, regrets from last week, concerned with sickness for ourselves and others, guilty from our sin. We are weak. Please give us your rest, and not only your rest, but your power. Increase our strength, our faith, our joy, that we can rightfully worship you now, and amen. amen. There are at least two ways that Christians can refuse God's forgiveness for our sin. The first is that we try to clean ourselves up. And the second way knows that we can't clean ourselves. And so we sit and we suffer in sin in order to feel like we can merit God's forgiveness. Here's an analogy for, that shows these two bad options. Imagine that you walk into a perfectly clean room with a white floor and you notice that you are tracking mud in. And so you take off your shoes and you start mopping. But wherever you step, the muck keeps oozing out. It's not just on the outside, but it's on the inside. It's coming from inside of you. Ah! Right? What do you do? Well, here are two bad responses. The first is you desperately try to clean yourself. Scrub, 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 scrub. The second option realizes that you are a mess. You can't clean yourself. So you then slump down into your oozing pile, your own private slew of despond. Have you said something like, I can't possibly be forgiven because my sin was so terrible? Or I can't possibly be forgiven because it was the fourth time this week I did the exact same thing. Or I can't possibly be forgiven because I just don't feel bad enough. And while this sounds kind of pious, this really is a refusal of your Savior's forgiveness, of God's cleaning you up. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you cannot clean yourself. You can't get the stain out. And yet, in the grip of sin, you frequently pretend you can. 
You may be thinking that by wallowing around in the guilt, by stewing in the shame, by suffering for the sin, you can merit forgiveness. But this is the backwards and ineffective way of you trying to be your own savior. The only way to deal with sin is through Jesus, the only true savior. He has suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, the clean for the unclean. This was finished 2,000 years ago on the cross and in his resurrection. So stop trying to clean yourself up. Stop stewing in the sin. Cry out to Jesus for help. Confess your sin to God. And he promises to cleanse you, to forgive you your sin, and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So as we confess our sins now, do not come wallowing in your sin, trying to work up some good, guilty feelings. That's not what this is for. Here we do confess that, yes, we are sinners in need of grace, but we also give thanks that God has more grace than we thought. Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Our Father, like Isaiah, your servant, a mere glimpse of your holiness and your glory is enough to flatten us and make us recognize our guilt, that we are unclean, and so we are undone. But through your Son, you have cleansed our hearts and our lips and our lives and forgiven our guilt. He is our perfect Savior. And yet too often we try to save ourselves, to forgive ourselves, to cleanse our own unrighteousness. We know that sin must be punished, but we refuse to accept Christ's punishment on our behalf. And so we stew and mope and afflict our souls. We confess that this is a proud refusal to receive your grace in Christ's work. And while we are at times unwilling to receive your forgiveness, we are also unwilling to give forgiveness. We pour on the guilt trips to our kids and we make our brother promise to never ever do it again to add stipulations to our forgiveness. And all of this is a failure to believe and imitate the way you have forgiven us in Christ. And we now confess our own individual sins to you and Selah. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please rise for the assurance of our Father's forgiveness. So Proverbs 8:35. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. My pastor growing up, he said that the gospel is too good to be true. And yet it is true nonetheless. The gospel is that if you confess your sins to God, even though it's too good to be true, 
He does forgive your sins. So hear the good news. Christian, if you confess your sins to God, your sins are forgiven through Christ. And thanks be to God. The sermon text this morning is 1 Corinthians 13. These are the words of God. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, this time when you come, do not keep silent. I ask that you would fill this house with glory. I ask that you would fill this place with your Holy Ghost. I ask that you would fill me with your word. And I ask that you would show us the love of God, reveal to us the love of God so that we might learn to love one another. We submit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name and amen. You may be seated. Well, happy Mother's Day. Um, and also a congratulations to uh, you NSA graduates. Welcome to any, and U of I graduates. You're, I see Josiah and Levi. <laughs> U of I too. Um, it's really sweet. If you're a visiting family from out of town, it's really good to have you. Um, uh, this morning uh, marks uh, the end of time and the beginning of summer, uh, except I think Logos still has a few more weeks. Is that, is that right? Okay, so we're on early summer. Y'all still got a few more weeks, but um, I was thinking this actually for me is three years that I've, I've been here, so uh, Greyfriars Hall follows the schedule of NSA, and so I'm officially out of Greyfriars Hall, and so I wanted to, 
to extend a big thank you to, to Christ Church, especially uh, to CCD, uh, to the session uh, of the church for really supporting and encouraging me for the last three years and making coming to Moscow. I didn't know anyone when I moved here. Uh, you guys have been so hospitable and loving and encouraging to me. Uh, you have made my Moscow experiences these last three years a huge blessing. So thank you for that. Uh, this morning is the fourth sermon in our series through 1 Corinthians 13, uh, this series we are calling The Love Chapter. And this morning, I want to look at four different things that love is not. So already we've seen what love positively is. It's patient. It's kind. And then last time we learned that love does not envy and there are four other things that we're going to look at this morning, and they are these. Number one, love does not parade itself. Two, love is not puffed up. Number three, love does not behave rudely. And number four, love does not seek its own. Now, uh, if you remember the context of 1 Corinthians, uh, you'll remember that the Corinthian church has been a very proud and boastful church. They're also a very gifted church, and those gifts had actually become a point of contention between them. You'll remember that there were divisions along party lines. People were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of, you know, Doug, I'm of Toby. There were people that were creating factions, and it was starting to get petty. There was infighting and factions in the church. They also started arguing about who had the best spiritual gift set, right? Is, is speaking in tongues better than gifts of healing? Are miracles better than the very practical gift of administration and teaching? They were using the gifts that the Holy Spirit had given to play this game of one-upsmanship. There was also a rampant sexual immorality in the church, there were marriage problems, young and single problems, food and drinking problems, people getting drunk at the Lord's Supper problems. Basically, if you can think of a sin that should not belong in the church of God, you could find it in the Corinthian congregation. And if you read through this book, um, it's kind of like just reading a church's dirty laundry. Uh, it's the truth about Corinth right here. And uh, you can read this letter and wonder sometimes, why is it that God puts up with these people? Why does he, uh, you know, allow all of this to happen in the church? It's like, Cor Corinth, you guys are not making a very good testimony for Jesus. You know, the whole incest thing, that doesn't look good. And so Paul has to rebuke them and say, don't you know that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? So uh, the reason that Paul can address them, you, you read the, the salutation at the beginning, and he calls them saints. How can he do this? How can he call these people holy ones when their conduct is kind of anything but holy? And of course, the answer is what Ty proclaimed earlier. It's, it's the gospel. The gospel is that God forgives sinners. Corinth is a hot mess, but it is God's hot mess. And God loves his bride, and we know that what love is, it's, it's patient and kind. God is patient and kind, and he's going to make the Corinthian church spotless over time. He's going to make Christ's church spotless over time. You're sitting next to a bunch of wrinkles and blemishes. 
some less wrinkly and some less blemished than others. But God is making us, over time, spotless. And in the meantime, he calls you holy and beloved. He calls you saints. This is your positional identity before God. One of the great high points in this book, there are, there are many, uh, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11, to where it says this. Don't you know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you are washed. You are sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul just goes down this list, and this is everyone kind of raising their hand. Oh, that was me. That was me. The Corinthian church was full of ex-idolaters, ex-sodomites, ex-adulterers, ex-liars, ex-thieves. But these were the people that Jesus came to save. Jesus says, I came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous. Dr. Story doesn't make house visits to people that are healthy and happy. He, he's got to go to the sick. He's got to go to those people who are in pain. And so who are you today? Are you deluded and deceived into thinking that you have no need of God, that you're all right living life apart from your creator. Because either you are a sinner that has been cleansed, forgiven, and God calls beloved and saint, or you are a sinner and you are deluded and deceived into thinking that you're not, or that you can work off those bad things you've done by doing some good things. Which boat are you in? How do you regard yourself? The reason I ask this is because as we look at these four things that love does not do, it is important that we remember that these are not uh, four hot tips to becoming more successful in life, of making friends and winning people. This is not a TED Talk. This is God's Word. This is the preaching of God's Word. This is the Word of God that has been purified seven times. And so will you receive it as such? If you are attempting to love anyone without the love of God inside of you, it's like trying to sail without the wind or drive down the street without an engine. You cannot give what you do not have, and only Christians have the love of God dwelling inside of them. You get this, right? Unbelievers do not know what love is. Just look at the movies. Just listen to the lyrics in the music. Look at the culture around you. Do, do, they, do they know what love is? No, they think love is two dudes on a date. That ain't love. That's an abomination. They think love is encouraging little girls to go out and be warriors and fight our battles. And that's female empowerment. No, that's a joke and that's a lie. That ain't love. The world doesn't know anything about love. And we, we come to 1 Corinthians 13, and this is the sword that cuts us. This is, I was looking at this text as I was preparing, this is the, the, the part that cuts me the most. 
Love does not parade itself. Love is not puffed up. It's not rude. And it doesn't seek its own. Have you sought your own? Then you haven't loved. So as we open God's word, I just ask that you would plead with the Lord to change you. To change your heart, to fill you with the spirit who is love. Because if you don't have God inside you, you are lost in the world. And you'll never love anybody. The first phrase we'll unpack comes from verse 4, and it is, love does not parade itself. We all know what a parade is, right? It's what parents take their kids to on the weekends to kill some time. It's this procession of cars and people and floats, usually down some main street. People pass out candy and balloons and business cards. (laughs) There's music and dancing marching bands, and other spectacles that are meant to draw your attention. Perhaps the most famous parade is what? Macy? Did I hear Macy? Yeah, the Macy's Thanksgiving Parade. There's marketing for you. We all know Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade if you wake up early enough on on the West Coast. A parade is about the most public thing you can do or be a part of, right? That's kind of the whole point. We don't throw parades on back alleys at 3 a.m. in the morning. No, we do it in the most public place at prime time, and we broadcast it to as many people as possible. That's what a parade is. Well, one of the things that love does not do is that. It doesn't parade itself. Love does not make itself the center of attention. It doesn't turn itself into a a spectacle to be looked upon. There's nothing wrong with parades and public celebrations in themselves. The problem is when you make yourself the center. In the King James, this verse reads, charity vaunteth not itself. This is a great word, vaunt. Do you know what to vaunt means? To vaunt is to boast. It's to brag. It's to be lifted up. It's what uh, Conor McGregor does before he walks into the octagon, you know, (laughs) to go fight somebody. Love doesn't do that. Love is not Conor McGregor. Proverbs 27.2, this is a, a great verse to Memorize, it says, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. Love inverts that. It praises itself. And you think when you do this, when you come to yourself after you've boasted and bragged, like, why did I do that? Well, scripture is very informative here. Scripture tells us that the reason we we parade ourselves is because we're hungry for glory. And at bottom, we kind of think we're God. I know you probably wouldn't ever say that, but that's kind of how you live. You, you, you think other people owe you respect. You think other people owe you thanks. 
You think the world revolves around you. Every child comes into this world thinking the world revolves around them. And the rest of their life is them figuring out that it doesn't. Love does not make itself the center of the universe. It doesn't make everything else about them. One of the ways the Corinthians were parading themselves was by using the actual gifts of God to boast and brag. They were competing for, in modern day, what we would say is book sales and conference attendance. See who could build the biggest platform, who could gain a following on social media. The Corinthians would have been masters of the humble brag, of name dropping. That's what they're doing in the first chapter. Yeah, it's just kind of me and Paul were hanging out, you know, just me and Paul. Oh, yeah, well, you know, Peter and I were eating meat the other day. <laughs> we're on a first name basis, me and, me and Apollos. But we do the same thing, right? We use other people's notoriety to try to catch some of that, to bolster our own reputations, And this is what the Corinthians were doing. We have also Christian devious ways of doing this. You think, hmm, what about our children? How do we use our children as kind of the marching band in our parade? We use our children to show off how godly we are. And here's the thing. The children really do reflect the parents. You really can see the parents in the children. That's a dangerous, scary thing. <laughs> Rod knows. <laughs> but how twisted do you have to be to use your children to make yourself look good? That you have children so that you can gain attention. That's your parade. Your kids. There's a way in which children are truly meant to to show honor and glorify the parents. But you know, parents, that parenting is not about you. It's not even really about your kids. It's about the glory of God and him desiring faithful offspring for a thousand generations. That's why we baptize little Penelope. Because God desires worshipers for all time. Because God deserves all of the praise and not you. So will you teach your children how to not parade themselves by not using them as your own parade? If you love God and you love your kids, you will not parade yourself. You will not vaunt yourself. Instead, you will vaunt and brag and boast about Jesus Christ you were, you were meant to brag, but you were meant to, to brag about what God has done. Paul tells the Corinthians this back in chapter 1, 31. He says, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. He quotes Jeremiah. You want to boast about something, boast that you know God. You should just type into like a little Bible software searching app. You can just do this on the internet. And look up how many times Paul talks about boasting. It's like everywhere. Boasting, bragging is something that Paul does all the time. 
But he boasts in the Lord. He boasts in his weakness so that the power of God would be manifest in it. And this is what love does. And love does not parade itself. The second phrase that comes after this in the text is that love is not puffed up. And this essentially makes the same point. So let's think about the the Macy's Day Parade again. Let's imagine we're in New York City. And you have these gigantic floats soaring through the sky. You got, I don't know what the famous ones are. I remember Snoopy. I know there's a big Snoopy. There's probably a big Pikachu, a big Mickey Mouse, or whatever the newest Disney character is. But they, they blow these enormous floats up and then just fly them through these skyscrapers. And then everyone just looks up and the kids go, oh my goodness. Now imagine we made a float of you. <laughs> we, we like 3D imaged you and 3D printed you and got a version of you that's like 100 times your size. Wouldn't you just love that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Kids, they lack self-awareness. <laughs> Everything about you blown up. And let's say we did this just right outside. I mean, Main Street's right there. We get a float of you, we blow it up, and we parade you down Main Street. Wouldn't you like that? <laughs> Parents, sounds like you need to have some conversations with your children after this. <laughs> well, well, when we are proud and puffed up, this is what we're doing, right? We're pumping helium into the 100 times size version of you. And you think, you think that would be cool because everyone would see you. But then you think, everyone's going to see you. And do you really want that? Do you really want that? Paul addresses, addresses this problem of being puffed up multiple times throughout 1 Corinthians. In chapter 1, they're puffed up over which apostle they followed. In chapter 4, they're puffed up over what gifts they had. In chapter 5, this is a weird one, they're puffed up over the tolerance of sexual sin in the church. Now, now no churches do that today, right? No churches brag about how inclusive they are today. They're not puffed up today, no. This is nothing new, people. The Corinthians were puffed up that there was a man who had his father's wife. And Paul says, shouldn't you mourn? but you're puffed up. This is not good. In chapter 8, Paul tells them that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Love builds up. And this being puffed up with knowledge is a perennial temptation in the church, and especially in communities like ours that champion Christian education. So we should take heed to Paul's words in chapter 8, which is in the context of food offered to idols and this knowledge uh, of the stronger brother and the weaker brother, this uh, knowledge of what this food offered to idols is. He says, you can actually use that knowledge to hurt your your weaker brother. But love, you know what love does, Paul says? It, It builds up. So true knowledge of God should humble us. Children, what is the beginning of knowledge? Who remembers this from Proverbs? Fear of the Lord. That's the beginning. True knowledge of God should humble you. 
Whenever anyone sees God in Scripture, they fall on their face as one dead. And this is how you know whether you've encountered the true and living God. You're not puffed up, no. You're, you're, you're like a worm on the ground. You're flat on your face saying, please don't kill me. You're Isaiah saying, woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. I dwell amongst the people that have unclean lips. And you are holy and I'm not. God humbles us to teach us Love. In James it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Jesus says, whoever exalts himself, whoever vaunts themselves, whoever puffs themselves up will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So, what is love? Well, it's not puffed up. It doesn't showboat. It doesn't brag. Love is humble. The third phrase in our passage, is that love does not behave rudely. And I think all the moms probably really like this one a lot. Love is not rude. It has good manners. Put another way, love is not ostentatious. It does not act unbecomingly. It is not uncouth. In the King James, it says it this way, it doth not behave itself unseemly. You guys know what unseemly behavior is, right? Love doesn't do that. Think about Donald Trump for a moment. Is, is Donald Trump someone that is humble? Is Donald Trump someone that is very well-mannered? I don't know. Is he patient and kind? This man who has Trump Tower, Trump Hotel, Trump Casino, Trump Presidency... Is such a man living solely Deo Gloria, or is Donald Trump living for the glory of Trump alone? He he will have to answer to God for that. But think about you. If you have ever been around someone who is very proud, besides yourself, you'll know that a proud person thinks that the rules and customs that apply to everyone else do not apply to them. They are above the law, so to speak. They park their Ferrari wherever they want. They don't use their blinker on the freeway. They cut to the front of the line. They expect everyone else to live by their standards and refuse to accommodate themselves to the sensibilities of others. A proud person is the standard. They make themselves the standard, and they don't play by anybody else's rules. And this is what the Corinthians were doing when they got drunk at the Lord's Supper. They were behaving rudely. Paul tells them, don't you have your own houses to drink in? Or do you despise your weaker brother? Do you despise those who don't have as much as you? It's basically like you're bringing all of this wine and food to the church potluck, not to share with anyone, but to just show off how rich you are. This is why Paul is going to say elsewhere to the women, don't adorn yourself with all of this, you know, fancy hairstyles and show off jewelry and stuff. Dress dress modestly. Love does that. It is sensitive to the comfort of others and isn't just thinking about what's comfortable for me. So what does this look like in our community? What does love does not behave rudely look like 
here. First, this means being courteous to everyone. Right? This is just across the board. But especially to those who have different cultural backgrounds than we do. Uh, Ty and I and a number of, of you are involved with international ministry. And you, you find very early on that there are different cultures and uh, social cues for interaction. Least of which that you don't speak the same language and you're trying to piece together a, a, a sentence in words that both of you can understand. If you've ever traveled to a place that you are unaccustomed to, you know how uncomfortable it can be. You're trying to translate everything so you can find the restroom. You're wondering, where, where, where do I go for this? So, so if you are someone who lives here, who is here, you should be extra courteous to those outsiders who come into this community. And, and I think you have done a great job of this. Right? I was one of those outsiders that came in, and you welcomed me into your homes. You cooked for me. You fed me. You partied with me. It was very sweet. And we must do this more and more for one another. Love doesn't just behave rudely. It actually acts with courteousness, with generosity, with kindness towards one another. It's looking for an opportunity to put people at ease. Let me take your coat. Here, th this is where you can put your shoes. In order for us to do this, we, we have to realize that we all have different sensibilities and preferences when it comes to things like food and clothing, musical tastes, liturgical practices, family traditions, handshakes, hugs, or even holy kisses. We've talked about this, right? We, we talk different, we look different, we act different. But for all those differences, we should be striving to be united and like-minded without being judgy or rude. And in order for love to dwell here, we have to have grace in both directions, right? We need to be able to absorb a perceived offense and seek to not give an offense unnecessarily. Both insiders and outsiders have to be gracious with one another. We have to mortify this inner ring mentality because we're all being assimilated into God's kingdom. There are aspects of our culture, of our traditions, of our upbringings that, need, that we need to be willing to say, that's sinful, and I'm going to leave that behind. We should not be so high-minded to think that we are the apex of Christian culture. What, what is NSA here to do to build and I always forget the shape and build culture or something like that? Right, we're, we're just the beginning, right? We don't even have a building yet. And so we shouldn't be so proud to think we have nothing to learn from those others that are coming in. And those that are coming in must say, well, there's a reason why the church is thriving here. What can I learn from this community? This is how love happens here. Paul illustrates uh, love's sensitivity when he says in chapter 9, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Not all of us are, are called to preach like this. 
but we're all called to love and to do it for the sake of the gospel, to accommodate yourself to others, to bend over backwards for the sake of the gospel. This is what we should be known for. Shouldn't we be known for our love, not just for being really smart or being really controversial or being really prophetic even? What if we were known for our love? In order to do that, it has to start here with these little things, with things like manners, with how you receive criticism from others when they say, uh, little Johnny has got some problems. <laughs> so don't get immediately defensive. Maybe they have something to say. So love has to run, grace has to run in both directions. Lastly, we come to our fourth and final phrase, and that is that love does not seek its own. Um, in the ESV, it says, love does not insist on its own way. And this here is one of those principles that summarizes really the previous three phrases and gets to the heart of what love is. When we parade ourselves, when we puff ourselves up, when we are rude to other people, it is always because we are self-seeking. It is always because we are thinking about ourselves instead of others. And so Paul says, love does not do this. What is love? Love is actually seeking the good of others. Love is wanting the best for your spouse, for your kids, for your church, and making the necessary sacrifices to bring about that good. It is this principle that separates real Christian biblical love from what the world calls love. This is the big difference. Just ask yourself, do you only love God because he makes life easier for you? Do you only love God to avoid hell? Do you only love your husband because he provides for you? Do you only love your wife because the sex is good? Do you only love your kids because they make you feel fulfilled and give you something to do? Are you using them to give meaning and purpose to your life? Do we only love people for what they can do for us in return? Because if this is us, then we are not really loving anyone but ourselves. We are seeking our own, and love does not seek its own. So what is the solution to this problem we all have of self-love? Paul actually takes for granted that you are going to love yourself. He, he says in Ephesians, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. He actually uses your self-love to illustrate the way Jesus is going to love the church. So what that means is that all of those modern prophets of self-care and self-esteem building and self-love they are lying to you. You don't have a love yourself problem. That is the problem. The problem is that you love yourself too much. You don't need to look in the mirror and tell yourself, you don't need to affirm yourself, I am great, I am beautiful, I, I am successful. You should look into the mirror of God's word and then repent. You should look at yourself and then turn away and say, God, help me. 
God, forgive me for the way that I have actually been loveless. The way I have taken every relationship and everything around me and bent it in to make it about me. You know what it is when people are clingy and needy. They don't have the love of God. And so their identity wobbles. And they need someone to stabilize them. This is why people get into dumb relationships. But love, it seeks other people's good. It takes little thought for themselves and considers what will honor God. What will be a blessing to others? Love is not thinking, how can I consume more? It's thinking, how can I give more? What if you were so full of the love of God that you always had something to give? We talked about that reservoir. I think this was in the Love Does Not Envy sermon. Do you have that reservoir of love in your marriage? How would that change if you were constantly thinking, how can I bless and serve and give to this person instead of, why won't they do that? I wish they would do this. Love takes no thought for oneself. It considers first what will please and glorify God and what will bless other people. The remedy, the solution What will fill your reservoir is knowing the love of God. Knowing what God says about you. Psalm 103, this is one of my favorite psalms in the Bible. It says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. That's really far. And that's the the analogy God uses to say, this is how much I love you. Your love for yourself can't do that. Your love for yourself won't hit the bottom of that eternal longing that he's placed in your soul. So do you fear God? Because God loves those who, who fear him. This is how your heart becomes living waters that flow and run into other people's lives. And that's been my prayer for you. It's my prayer for me that we would have that stream of living waters that Jesus talked about to flow into other people's lives. What if we loved each other this way? How would that change the aroma of your home? How would that change the tenor of your marriage? How would that change the way you raise your kids? How would that change the way you honor your boss? How would that change the way you speak about people when they're not there? To seek another's good and not merely our own is the essence of love, and that is the essence of the gospel. Look at what Christ had, and look at what he gave up for you. Did Jesus seek his own when he went to the cross? Or did he seek the glory of his father? For all his life, Jesus was seeking the glory of his father so that he could seek your good. And so that love is extended to you today. The only question is, will you receive it? I hope you will. Let me pray for you. Father, we confess that we know very little of love. 
and we think very highly of ourselves, more highly than we ought. Father, we confess corporately that we have been a proud people, proud in all kinds of ways. And we want to humble ourselves so that you will exalt us. Give us the spirit of love. In Jesus' name, and amen. Uh, well, this morning is the last 930 uh, service here at CCD before we change for the summer. Um, and next week, there will be one service at the Field House at 830 and one service here at the Newark at 1030. And Pastor Doug will be preaching at both of those. And uh, throughout the summer, there will really be, um, it'll be the same preacher, same sermon, same liturgy in both places. So in some ways, we are becoming the, the second service. Uh, there's just one over there and then uh, one over here. So uh, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Uh, there are a number of practical reasons for this change. One is that many students leave for the summer and there just isn't a need for, for all three different service times. Also, it gets very hot in the Logos gym and we are blessed here in the New Art with AC. Uh, but there's another reason. Did someone say amen? Amen. <laughs> but there's another reason that relates to this table in front of us and that is the building up of the body in unity and love. Paul says in Ephesians 4, there is two bodies. Oh, no, <laughs> there's one body. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. So what this change over the summer allows us to do is mix and mingle with our brothers and sisters who we don't get to see very often. I was actually just over there a few weeks ago, and I'm like, I don't know most of these people. I've not seen them before. Maybe they have read my name or I've seen their name somewhere, but I've never actually met them. So this is a, a unique opportunity that we get to have to, to meet and to fellowship with people that we don't normally get to see. Um, uh, this meal before us is a visible testimony of what should be a very real and spiritual unity that we already have in Jesus. So let us eat and drink this morning with love for the people in this room, but also prepare your hearts to do the same next week with what may be a very different crowd. Can you do that? All right. All baptized believers are welcome to communion. If you are not a Christian, please abstain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the work that you're doing in Moscow and how Jesus has brought us near to you and to one another. We ask that you would strengthen our bond of unity this summer. We ask that you would prune and root out sin in our hearts and that you would prepare us, poise us for greater growth for many years to come. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name and amen. amen. The charge is this. Uh, loving people is kind of like planting seeds in the ground. You do it and then you bury it, and you can't see it, and you wonder, did I actually do anything by loving them? Well, remember, God sees everything. He sees the little things. He, he sees your small efforts, your small steps to love people, and he always blesses and brings harvest when we sow in faith. So sow in faith this week. Receive now the benediction. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, 
comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.